Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, we'll be uh, in the last chapter of the book that we've been walking through the entirety of the spring. Uh, And as you guys turn there, let me just uh, say to you parents that are with us and visiting with us, or if you're visiting uh, as a student for the first time, let me just extend to you a special welcome. Uh, My name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus. And for you parents, let me just uh, especially tell you guys, uh, welcome. We are uh, thrilled to have you guys. Even more, I want to express to you guys, it is a giant privilege for us as a church to have the opportunity to shepherd your student. Uh, for the time that they're here in college. For us as a church, uh, your student uh, is our joy and is our delight, and it is for us a a great privilege to get to walk with your student in their time here. And our prayer and our hope is by the time they graduate and leave that they will have a stronger love for Jesus Christ, a stronger walk with Jesus Christ, and and I hope that's occurring in their lives. And so thank you guys for being here with us. So we're going to be Philippians chapter 4 this morning, uh, verses 1 to verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, and this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Adia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We pray with me. Father God, we come before you and we just confess this morning, even as we worship, even as we sing and declare that uh, your name above all else is our heart's desire, we just confess and admit uh, there's so many times that's not true. Uh, There are times that there are other names that are more of our heartbeat, that there are other names that we care more greatly about, and there are other things we pursue with greater vigor and greater passion. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would allow us this morning to find in you uh, and an opportunity to see you afresh this morning, a greater delight in you. Father, I thank you that you are so kind and so gracious with us, um, that you would send your only son, Jesus Christ, who would die in our place even while we were hostile to you. Uh, Even before we had confessed that we wanted to walk with you, even before that happened, you chose to die on our behalf, offering to all of us a free gift of salvation for the forgiveness of sins on the basis of not what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And that even in trusting you, even in entering into a relationship with you, you are still so patient with us. You bear with us, you walk with us, you are slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness. And Father, I pray this morning, even as we tackle chapter 4 of Philippians, look at the topic of conflict, Lord, I pray that you would show us your grace, you would show us how you handled conflict, and I pray that you would teach us in a fresh way this morning in the midst of the different uh, places that we experience conflict in our own lives, Lord. I pray that we would walk with greater wisdom, with greater skill uh, in handling those opportunities and those situations as you would call us and as you would have designed them to be. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, and walking through Philippians 4 this week, I was reminded afresh of a Peanuts comic strip this week of uh, Linus and Lucy. Some of you guys may remember this, but uh, Linus was uh, sitting in a living room one day watching TV, and Lucy came storming in, and uh, Lucy began to demand that Linus change the channel on the TV. At which point, uh, Linus uh, pushed back saying, hey, what makes you think you can storm in here and just take over? To which Lucy responded to sweet, precious Linus, these five fingers. 
Individually, they're nothing, but when they curl them together, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. And so Linus simply acquiesced and uh, changed the channel to whatever Lucy wanted, and a few minutes later, he eventually just left the room. And as he left the room, he dejectedly looked down at his own five fingers and thought, why can't you guys just get organized like that? Uh, And I don't know about you guys, I I think for a lot of us, I think many of us will either mirror how Lucy handles conflict or how Linus handles conflict, right? I don't know whether in the midst of conflict or disagreements, whether you're like Lucy or whether you're like Linus, but I would typically guess that you're like one of them. Either you're like Linus and that when conflict emerges, you want to duck and run for cover because you want to avoid conflict at any cost, Right. Uh, maybe you're a little bit like me where a friend or a spouse or somebody uh, will in a uh, public situation at a restaurant or in a customer service situation voice great displeasure and you just feel mortified inside by someone who's just rocking the boat. Why can't you just be quiet and just move along, right? Uh, but maybe some of you guys aren't like that. Uh, maybe some of you guys are a little bit more like Lucy who can quite effectively win in just about any argument that you find yourselves in, right? Uh, you can slice and dice, you can bowl people over and you can get what you need, The problem for a lot of us that it can be like Lucy is that we can be, in a sense, factually right, but relationally wrong, right? Uh, We can win arguments, but by the the end of those arguments that we've won, what we've actually occurred is that we actually have lost the relationship. Uh, And winning that argument, we actually cost ourselves something far greater than whatever it is that we were actually arguing about. I think for so many of us, we can tend to be like Lucy or we can tend to be like Linus. And what Paul will do for us in Philippians chapter 4 is look at the inevitability of conflict. Uh, It's not a surprise that you and I will find ourselves in conflict. In fact, conflict can at times burst out far more passionately and far more heatedly amongst those we love the best and love the deepest, which is why maybe it's not coincidence that here on Parents Weekend, we landed in Philippians chapter four on conflict resolution, right? Maybe for some of you guys with your parents, even this very weekend, you found you guys back in the same old conflicts, the same old disagreements about money or about decisions or about a guy or a girl. I don't know what it was, but even this weekend, it could have, uh, in a sense, uh, refreshed itself for you and brought you a fresh reminder of conflict, even within family. I think what Paul will do for us in Philippians chapter four is not just show us really the inevitability of conflict, but I think Paul is going to walk us through really the skill and the art of conflict resolution. An art and a skill that you and I don't figure out intuitively. In fact, an art and a skill that Paul, I think, is going to give us uh, three or four different pitfalls to avoid in, in handling conflict resolution. Because conflict is going to happen. The question is, how do you and I handle it? And I think Philippians 4 is really insightful as to where Paul is going to take us in looking at not just the presence of conflict, but particularly pitfalls to, to handling conflict resolution. That's where Paul is going to take us this morning, Philippians chapter 4. And really as it opens up, what you're going to see really is that conflict is no surprise. But as Philippians 4 opens, really the surprise will come not just in the presence of conflict, but particularly who it finds and who it is going to encounter and, and who's going to be experiencing this conflict. Philippians chapter 4, really verses 1 to 3 is going to show us that conflict is universal. There's no relationship that you're a part of that you probably at some level have not experienced conflict. None of us are strangers to disagreements, and none of us are strangers to conflict. A room like this, we can't even agree on where we want to go eat after church on Sunday, right? Even that simple of a decision would create all kinds of debate and, and, uh, and fighting and disagreements. And, and so for us, conflict is no stranger. Really what's interesting to me, though, in chapter 4, though, is who finds this conflict? Notice what Paul will say in Philippians chapter 4, beginning back in verse 1. Notice how he sets it up. He says, Therefore, my beloved brother, in whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2, notice who finds conflict. I urge you, Adiah, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. (laughs) Paul is going to highlight a conflict that was going on in the church in Philippi. 
Uh, in fact, he's going to name names and call it right on the open because evidently everyone knew about it. And so he calls these two individuals out. I want you guys to notice exactly how Paul describes these individuals who apparently, uh, by the fact that Paul has to write to them, they've found themselves in quite a discord, quite a disagreement. And notice, though, how Paul describes in verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, <laughs> together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice who came across conflict. Notice exactly who is at odds here in chapter 4 of Philippians. It's not just two people who claim to know Jesus Christ, but it's two people who have been laboring for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who according to the book of Philippians in the context of the book, who have been suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have laid their lives down for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here they found themselves in some kind of significant disagreement. Conflict really is universal. There are none that can avoid it. It is inevitable in our lives. I think it's fascinating, even as you look at the scriptures, one of the things I love about uh, the Bible is that it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't try to present a rosy picture of people, of God, or even necessarily of what happens in the church itself. Notice uh, in Acts chapter 15, notice what Paul will say. Notice the disagreement that broke out between two leaders of the church in the book of Acts, uh, between a guy named Barnabas and a guy named Paul. Notice what Acts records for us. Barnabas on this trip wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him. Apparently in a previous missionary journey, John Mark had, uh, in a sense, abandoned them completely and just sold them out. And so in a second missionary journey, Barnabas is wanting to give this guy a second shot. Paul says, no, no, he's not dependable. And what, notice what ends up happening in light of their disagreement. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. These are leaders in the church, Acts 15. Sharp disagreement. This is Philippians 4, women who have been very much laying their lives down for the gospel, sacrificing greatly, and they find themselves in disagreement and conflict. The reality is there are none of us that can avoid conflict. And what's fascinating is even those that love Jesus Christ, even those that love one another, find themselves often in sharp disagreement. In fact, I would argue, especially to you guys in the midst of family, I think what we often find is that those that we love the most are those that we can have the most heated conflict with at times, Right? It can get really hot in close quarters and in the midst of relationships where we have great trust, great love, and great uh, uh, binding together. It is sometimes in those settings that we can have the, the hottest of conflicts. And what's fascinating really as Paul will go on here in Philippians 4 is he's going to show us it's not just that conflict is universal, that we all will experience it, but that it never stays personal. Uadiah and Syntyche had gotten in some kind of disagreement with one another. They had crossed each other. And what Paul is going to do here in bringing it up and naming names is, is an admission, the fact that this disagreement in which they had gotten crossed with one another had not stayed private. <laughs> it was impossible for them to hide this conflict. It had impacted the community and it impacted the church and it impacted even the mission of the church. This conflict that had been personal never stays personal. In fact, Paul is going to have to call them out. He's going to call a companion in verse 3, probably the elder of the church to step in and to step into this situation and to help bring peace and to bring harmony back to it. It's fascinating to me, even as you look at that Paul obviously had heard about it, obviously he's got to move towards it. And I think for many of us, we think, hey, a conflict breaks out. Let's just kind of keep it between us. But the reality is and we never really do a good job of doing that. Uh, conflict and community and the way that we, we live life is such that a conflict that is between two individuals never just stays between them. You've seen this even in families where we would say at times, if mama ain't happy, 
Ain't nobody happy, right? Um, you know, that when a conflict erupts within the home, it never stays just between those two individuals. Everyone's walking on eggshells because ultimately when there's discord, we all get really uncomfortable, right? We don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to help them. We don't know whether to avoid it because it impacts all of us that are around it. It impacted the entirety of the church. It's fascinating that you see this not just in the church, not just in families, but you see this in every arena of life. Uh, I doubt very many of you guys have been following the divorce of Frank and Jamie McCourt in Los Angeles, but the owners of the Los Angeles Dodgers have been probably in the news every single week for at least the last year and a half. Uh, They've probably had one of the highest notoriety uh, divorces that have been in the works. Not that I love following divorces in the news, all right? Uh, But uh, this story is kind of fascinating to me because here you have a great example of a couple who had gotten cross with each other. And yet their, their disagreement with each other had not just gone public in the news, but it impacted now because of their own disagreement, an entire baseball team. A divorce that was being filed and, and arguments that were occurring about a couple's finances had basically frozen the finances of this family, thereby, thereby freezing the finances of an entire baseball team. Major League Baseball had to take over and actually assume financial control of that baseball team because this marriage had so run off, off the tracks. In fact, for every fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, they were just in a tailspin. Their team was frozen. Their team couldn't sign players, couldn't even pay employees. And eventually, even as they looked at the long-term future, they were quite uncertain and quite uh, struck in doubt and concerned about their beloved team. If you follow the news at all this week, we know that actually the McCourts are now out of the situation because they sold the team off to a group uh, backed by Magic Johnson to L.A. for two billion dollars. That'll help with some financial troubles, won't it, right? But this divorce proceeding, this was, which was in a disagreement between two individuals, hadn't just affected their kids and their family, but it impacted an entire city, an entire baseball team, and all their fans. Conflict never stays personal, no matter the setting, no matter the community, no matter the context. Whatever is brewing between you and another individual will always at some point spill out. And yet I think you and I are so averse or so aware of at times the damage that conflict can occur that I think you and I have bought into a lie. I think you and I have bought into a myth that sees that conflict is bad. And what I want to tell you guys this morning is that I think that is a giant myth because conflict can be a giant opportunity. I think conflict can actually be an incredibly good thing. I'm going to uh, flip you around a little bit and I'll tell you guys, as couples come talk to me and they're hey, a guy's coming going, hey, I kind of, I'm moving to that place where I think I want to propose to my girlfriend and he'll ask me, hey, am I ready? Or, or a couple will be uh, on the verge of engagement going, hey, I, we're just trying to make sure that God's hand is in our marriage and that we're moving toward marriage. Are, are we on the right track or not? They'll ask me and they'll say, hey, how do you know? <laughs> and this may surprise you, but you want to know what my first question to them is? Tell me about your most recent and your most heated fight. <laughs> I want to know, how bad has it gotten? How, how honest are you guys communicating? How, how heated has your own disagreements gotten? Because for me, the absence of conflict is far more troubling than its presence. If a couple's not having conflict, then I don't think they're actually being real at all with each other. And that as you look at conflict, really what conflict shows you is that it shows you that really there's an opportunity that in the midst of conflict that you can increase one's communication, and then secondly, you can increase one's commitment to one another. Communication and commitment. What conflict affords you and what provides a a relationship is an opportunity to increase communication and increase commitment. When you're in the midst of an early dating relationship, why is it that you're not honest with the other person? Because you're afraid if you're actually honest about what you want, how you think, or how you feel hurt, you're afraid that person's just going to take off, right? You don't communicate because you're afraid that because there's no commitment, there's no trust, that this thing could just dissolve the moment that you're actually honest and real. If they actually, or he or she actually knew what I thought and how I felt and what I preferred, would they still be in this thing or would they fly the coop and be gone in a heartbeat? 
That's why it's the absence of conflict that is far more troubling to a relationship than the presence of conflict. The presence of conflict shows that there is great trust in a relationship, that people can be honest and real with one another about their preferences, about their desires, about their feelings, and that there's enough security in that relationship that it can handle that and that the person's not going to take off. Conflict can actually be a great opportunity to further grow those very things. Conflict is like breaking a bone. It's incredibly traumatic in the moment, right? But in the healing process that can occur, that bone can come back and heal far stronger than it was before the break. What conflict affords and allows a relationship is a breaking moment that when, if healing can occur properly, that relationship can come back even far stronger than it did before the break or before the conflict. The challenge is, so very few of us ever see that. Uh, the challenge is, for some of us, we've never seen that modeled very well. How in the world do we have conflict that can become an opportunity that can move us toward a deepening ability to communicate and find commitment in a relationship? What does that even look like? How in the world do you do that? What Paul's going to do for us really in verses 4 to 9 is transition us and looking at how you and I move from the presence of conflict to the resolution of conflict. How do you and I take what could be an opportunity and actually see it mature and bring about a development in our marriages, in our relationships, in our families, in our roommate situations, in every arena of our life? How does that work? How does that look like? What Paul is going to do for us in verses 4 to 9 is really provide us a series of pitfalls to conflict resolution, all right? If conflict is inevitable, then how in the world do you and I ensure that conflict can become an opportunity for us? The first thing I'd say is let's uh, first change the myth that conflict is bad. The moment you guys experience conflict, I want you guys to flip instincts and flip your first step to go, how could this be good for us? The moment conflict emerges, the moment someone says something that is criti- critical or is that uh, is crossing of you guys, I'd love for your first instinct not to be to duck and cover or to defend. But I'd love for your first instinct to begin to change in light of a myth that you would throw away that says, this can be really good for us. This can be really good for me. What would that look like? In order for that to happen, Paul's going to kind of give us a series of practical principles to ensure that that can happen, all right? And really, I think the first thing he's going to do is to show us that the first pitfall to conflict resolution is an approach in which you and I are attacking, all right? And I know you guys have been in this kind of situation before. Someone voices a criticism to you, and it just feels like an all-out assault on your very identity, personality, and character to the core of who you are, right? And I know a lot of you guys have been in that spot. You know, our first instinct is defense and to pull back, and, and or, or if we don't defend, our first instinct is to what? Attack right back, right? And so what I want to do is kind of give you guys a sense of what I think Paul is doing here and showing us the reality of attacking is such that it never gets us where we need it to get us if conflict is going to be the opportunity that produces fruit in our lives. Uh, really, uh, as you guys look back at verse 1, notice how Paul begins this discussion. Paul is going to step into a conflict that is not even his, and notice how he steps into it. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice how many ways and how many times Paul tries to be encouraging in verse 1. And this isn't even his conflict. <laughs> As he steps into it, he wants to be overly encouraging toward them. And then verse 2, he's going to provide the criticism that, hey, you two guys that are crossing, you guys got to figure this out and figure it out quick. But then notice how he comes back in verse 3, and he's going to speak of their contributions to the gospel, of their ability and their willingness in the past to suffer, and he's going to come back with encouragement. Really, the first thing I want you guys to see in terms of conflict resolution, the first real need to do conflict resolution well is to bring a lot of encouragement to the discussion. All right? I'm going to give you guys uh, a technique that is known as the encouragement sandwich, all right? And so in the midst of conflict, this is what you do, all right? As you step into a, uh, a conversation in which you need to have some conflict, you begin with encouragement, then you bring the criticism, and then you bring the encouragement, which is really exactly what Paul models for you in verses 1, 2, and 3. 
Verse one, a conflict that is not even his. He's not even a party in it. He's overly encouraging my beloved, my brethren, those whom I long to see. He's overly encouraging. Verse two, he says, hey, you guys need to figure this out and figure this out quick. Verse three, uh, and you guys have suffered so admirably. You guys have contributed so much to the gospel that I want to see that continue. Uh, Paul is, is exhibit one in the encouragement sandwich, all right? And if you guys will try that, uh, it will do uh, worlds of changes for your relationships, all right? If you can start out with encouragement, uh, then provide a little bit of criticism as to what's going on, and then end it with encouragement, it will allow the other person to hear things completely different. Because as you do conflict resolution, if you're going to do it well, you've got to do it with lots of encouragement. Because you're doing it because you want something even better in that relationship. Otherwise, you would have just been quiet. When you avoid conflict, what it communicates is you really don't actually care that, great, that greatly about the relationship. But for you to come in and for you to say something and to actually bring some criticism and say, hey, what it's saying to the other person, if they can hear it, is I want something even more from this relationship. I think this could be even better. And I care that much about you that I want to step in here and deal with this difficult conversation. And they're going to, have to be able to hear that if you begin and you end with some encouragement. Second thing I think is absolutely necessary is absolutely is humility. It's not just that you need encouragement to do conflict resolution well, but you actually need a strong dose of humility as well. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Who is he speaking to? Who is at fault in verse 2 for this conflict? Is it Eudaya or is it Syntyche? We don't know. Paul's not telling us exactly who is at fault. But who's responsible to fix it? They are, right. Both of them, right? Thanks for the rhetorical answer. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, they are. They're both, they're both responsible to step in and fix it, right? He's speaking to both of them and saying to both of you guys, hey, jump in this thing together and, and address this in each other's lives. Because in terms of conflict resolution, it is not just the one who has been wrong that's responsible but is to initiate conversation, but it's even the one who's done the wrongdoing. I'll tell you guys, there's many times in my marriage where uh, I will have said something stupid to Marcy, all right? And thankfully, after almost 10 years of marriage, I can anticipate and see what just happened. And I will quickly, before she even knows that she's hurt, apologize, all right? Uh, That's when I'm on my game, all right? I saw it. uh, I owned it, all right? But let's be honest. There's a lot of times I'm not on my game, all right? And uh, and I I said something like an idiot, all right? Uh, And I've crushed my wife's feelings. And she comes back to me and says, hey, when you said this, I felt really hurt. And notice, in the midst of marriage, in the midst of any relationship, who's, who's responsible to come to the table and to begin the discussion for conflict resolution? Is it the one that's been wronged or is it the one that did the wronging? It's both. It, it's as the Lord brings awareness to the situation, both parties are responsible. And I think for, really, for a lot of us, we often think that the first person to the table loses all leverage and they lose face, right? And so we don't want to be the first one to bring it up because really, then, then we lose leverage. We look like we're complaining or we look like we're too sensitive, Really what Paul is going to do for us, really as we look at verse 2, is he's going to call both of us to the table. Whether you've been wronged or whether you did the wronging, it is your responsibility to bring about resolution and bring about peace. I think for some of us, we have scars and we have issues that we've left, like a gaping wound that's just laid in our life that we've never addressed and we've never brought up. And maybe for some of you guys, it's time that you, you approach that person and you say, hey, when this occurred, even if it was five years ago, I'm still dealing with this. And part of the reason why you're still dealing with this is because that, re- that relationship has never been reconciled. There's never been resolution to the discussion. And I think one of the other biggest myths that you and I have to get through and get past is that uh, even if we've been wrong, there are times that we may still be responsible for the wronging that we received. And, and please hear me very carefully in this. I- I'm not referring to cases of significant abuse where you brought it on yourself. That's not what I'm referring to at all. 
I'm referring to just normal run-of-the-mill relational dis- disagreements that occur within relationships, within roommate situations. And I can tell you, especially you've seen this in the dating and marriage, where there have been times that I was frustrated. And, and, I, did, and, I, and I reached a place where I was just hurt. And one of the things I've realized in wisdom as I've grown even through marriage or through relationships with friends is realizing there are times where I have done things that have created an environment that caused the other person to wrong me. And that in the midst of relationships, in the midst of any community, it is rarely one person's fault. Conflict is not bad. Myth number one, to bust that thing. Myth number two, it is rarely one person's fault. And I think for a lot of us, when we come in attacking, we come in attacking because we see it clearly to be that person's fault. And we've not slowed down and stopped enough to say, hey, could I be in any way responsible for this disagreement? Could I be any way causal for the environment and the situation that's developed that provoked that person to respond to me in that particular way? How could I be at fault? Uh, to resolve conflict well requires great encouragement and also requires great humility, which is why I think Jesus says in Matthew 7, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye? First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly. I think step one really in, in uh, doing conflict resolution well is a step of humility that stops and says, hey, uh, is there some element that I need to fix in myself? Is there a, a fault that I need to address and see in myself first before I ever s- step up and speak to the person? It requires great humility to do that, even in the midst of feeling frustrated and hurt, to go, hey, have I done something here <laughs> that has provoked that kind of response in the person towards me? Is there a reason why I'm frustrated and I've actually been at fault in this entire uh, recipe and in this entire equation, so to speak? I think really, if we look at attacking, in order to avoid that, you have to have a lot of encouragement, you have to have a lot of humility, and lastly, I'd say you have to have a lot of gentleness. Look back in verse 5, notice what Paul will say. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. I think in the midst of doing conflict resolution well, a lot of us can be like Lucy, and when we come in, we come in and we bulldoze people right over. (laughs) Um, By the time we're done, there's nothing left of the other person. Sure, nothing left of our relationship. And for a lot of us, when we come in attacking without any kind of gentleness, really what gets, what, what gets robbed really is the relationship itself, and we end up the loser. Linus takes off and wants nothing to do with Lucy. I think for some of us, that is you. You can't maintain friendships, and, and people are like a revolving door through your life because you've not learned how to forgive. You've not learned how to address things with gentleness and with kindness and with compassion. And so you're running over people, and people are taken off because they just don't want to deal with it. And you've not learned how to speak with gentleness and speak with kindness. I think one of the real motivators that comes with that is really what Paul will say at the end of verse 5, and he says, the Lord is near. What's the connection between gentleness and the nearness of the Lord? I think ultimately Paul is going to put those side by side because what Paul wants us to realize is in the midst of conflict, vengeance is God's. God will take care of it. God will judge it and God will reconcile it and he will deal with it. And therefore in his nearness and his soon coming and arrival, he will deal with it and so you don't have to. And then it takes great gentleness not to go for your pound of flesh and not to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a wrong for a wrong. But to come and, and to bend with humility and to bend with gentleness and encouragement, and even if you've been the one who's been wronged, and looking for something more than just the righting of that wrong and just for an I'm sorry, but looking for a restoration of the relationship, that takes an approach that's incredibly different and incredibly, incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> And I think for a lot of us, this is where we fall in, and this is where we struggle in this particular arena. I think, secondly, I think Paul, though, is going to give us another classic pitfall to conflict resolution when he says in verse 4, notice what he says in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. I think uh, another pitfall in conflict resolution is absence of joy. 
I'll be honest, as I read through chapter four, and was going, uh, I'm tracking along, but what does verse four have to do anything with the flow of the discussion about conflict? Uh, what's the relationship between joy and conflict? Uh, I'll illustrate it for you guys like this, all right? I think, in a sense, joy, and when you and I have uh, joy uh, thriving in our lives, you and I see the world, we see life, we engage people completely different than when joy is absent. I think a good illustration for what joy is like is coffee, all right? So, um, here we go. Coffee is chemical joy. Watch and learn, all right? So, um, some of you guys may know one of our interns, Titus, here. Titus, big... uh, Burly guy. Uh, you don't want to meet him in a dark alley if he's angry, all right? So uh, Titus, I love. He's one of my guys, all right? Titus, I will tell you every morning when he comes in the office, I can tell you within seconds as to whether he's had coffee, all right? Within seconds, I can tell, all right? Uh, clue number one is his eyes, all right? Uh, when he's had coffee, his ali- eyes are not just awake, but they have a glimmer, all right? They are excited, all right? Uh, when he's not had coffee, his eyes are barely open. And, and in fact, when he's not had coffee, he's not even done his hair. His hair is just relaxed, all right? Uh, and when he rolls in, uh, if he's not had coffee, I'll tell you, he uh, he's not really super conversational, all right? Um, but when he's had coffee, the extrovert comes out in him, like you may have interacted with him very this morning, Mr. Extrovert, you know, greeting and saying hi to people, but no coffee, not a lot of extrovertedness, all right? Um, in fact, I, I asked him for permission to use this story this morning. He goes, you're not going to compare me, like, without coffee to the swamp thing and with coffee to, like, Captain America, are you? I was like, well, those were your words, so I guess I may use them, all right? So, you know, I, I think for Titus, and I think for a lot of us, Without coffee and with coffee, completely different people, right? Uh, with coffee, I can engage the world. I can think deeply. I can love people. I can handle adversity a little bit, or actually not a little bit, a lot better than without coffee, right? Without coffee, I'm just dead man walking, all right? Uh, you don't want to talk to me, all right? In fact, Marcy's learned even in our own marriage, two things have to happen really before I can engage. I need a shower and I need some coffee and then I'm ready to talk, all right? So that's just kind of our marriage, all right? But I think a lot of us are like that. And I think really, not to be cheesy, but I think coffee does a lot of the same thing that joy does. When you and I are filled with the joy of the Lord and we're walking in the presence of God and filled with his joy, it has a profound impact on how we see the world, how we engage people, and really the entirety of the way that we respond to life. Absent of joy, you and I are going to end up in conflicts that, we, that frankly were unnecessary, and we stand zero chance to resolve them well, absence of joy. Because when you and I are absent of joy, it's like we've rolled off on the wrong side of the bed and we don't have any coffee and we're not going to be easy to deal with. Because life is all about us. Uh, life is spinning out of control. We have no capabilities and resources to handle anything. Like really, the, the theme of joy is dominant throughout the book of Philippians. Notice really how this theme works its way throughout the book. Uh, notice uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Paul will say this, in a sense, as we look at this idea, how in the world, though, if joy is so significant, then how in the world do you and I build and maintain joy in our lives? Paul will speak of this, Philippians chapter 1. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. How was Paul's joy maintained and established? It was by a preoccupation with Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul's concern, even as he was in prison, and even as some were preaching Christ just to make it more difficult for him, his greatest concern and his greatest preoccupation was with Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is your chief number one pursuit and preoccupation, and it's not self, then your potential to experience joy is off the chart. When life is about you, and it's not about him, uh, joy becomes pretty difficult and pretty elusive to grab. In fact, that's why Paul will say, actually also in chapter 2, make my joy complete by being in the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Paul picks up that theme of joy in chapter 2, and he's going to say something similar but different. 
Chapter one, joy was maintained for Paul when Christ was exalted as supreme over everything else in his life. Chapter two, Paul will say uh, his joy was maintained and established and even grown when the community's good was more significant than his own. That when the group and the whole was more significant than his own, then he found a joy that was inexpressible and full of hope. Ultimately for you and I, when our preoccupation is on Jesus, not on self, or on a community and others, not on self, then our ability to find joy and experience it to the hilt is far greater than when you and I are just consumed with self. When you and I are just consumed with what we need and what we want to grab, then life begins to look different and we begin to engage it differently. It's really why Paul will say in in chapter 4, verse 8, notice where he goes next. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I want to ask you, what are you preoccupied with? That when you're walking in the joy of the Lord, what you're preoccupied with is ultimately Jesus Christ. It is the people of God and the others that God has put in your life around you and then ultimately the things that are good the things that are right, the things that are honorable, the things that are worthy of worship, that which he's entrusted to you as a good gift. That when that is present in your life, you have an ability to avoid conflict that is unnecessary and you have an ability to resolve conflict in a way that you cannot do and you you stand no chance when you're not filled with the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord makes you see life and makes you engage people incredibly differently. Apart from it, you stand no chance. So Paul is going to say, really, pitfall number two to uh, resolving conflict well is an absence of joy. Here's pitfall number three, anxiety. I think this is really interesting. Verses six and seven probably are the most familiar verses in your book and the book of Philippians. And yet what I think is fascinating about verses six and seven is you and I have often missed the entire context of those verses. Notice what Paul says as he looks at anxiety, pitfall number three. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A lot of you guys have memorized those verses. A lot of you guys have quoted those verses. A lot of you guys try to live by those verses. And I think they're dynamite. I think that a lot of us have missed the overarching context that those verses are talking about and talking within. Sure, they're talking in general about anxiety and prayer as prayer is a cure to anxiety. But in, in specifically, in the context, Paul is speaking about prayer as a cure to anxiety in the midst of conflict. What's the connection between anxiety and conflict? Uh, in the midst of conflict, why do you guys get so anxious, right? Your roommate's crossed you. you you've gotten uh, crossed with a roommate, and all of a sudden you begin to avoid your home like the plague, right? You wait till they go to bed, then you go home. Uh, then you try to get up before they wake because you're just so anxious about the relationship. Why are you so anxious? Why is anxiety so dominant in the midst of conflict? What makes you so anxious? I think anxiety really brings to the surface a lot of things that are so difficult for us. I think for so many of us that wonder whether uh, we're valuable and whether, whether we have security and value, uh, I, think, I think conflict rises those fears of insecurity uh, and brings them straight to the surface. Again, it brings that, that whole idea of, hey, if I'm actually real with a person and I actually have to deal with this discussion, what's going to happen? Will they stick with me or are they gone? Are they going to judge me when they see me as I really am or are they gone? What's going to happen? When, when you and I become anxious of what someone's going to think or how someone's going to respond and we hold back, in conflict, you and I don't stand any chance of actually resolving that conflict and pressing forward to what uh, the conflict opportunity could become for that relationship. We never come back stronger from that when anxiety is present. In fact, Paul is going to say quite strongly, really our response in the midst of conflict when anxiety brews is that you and I are to pray. Be anxious for nothing, here's the cure, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why is prayer such an, a cure to anxiety? When you and I are anxious, ultimately, what are we so worried about? 
I, I think you and I are often worried about two primary things. Will God provide and does God care? Can God provide and does God care? And what I want to do for you guys is keep your finger here in Philippians 4. I want you guys to flip over to Matthew chapter 6 really quick. Jesus is going to do something in Matthew 6 that really kind of, I think, brings this all together for us in such clear, vivid fashion. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to about 30 is where I want us to kind of wrap up this morning. As we kind of tackle, hey, what's the connection between anxiety and conflict? Why is anxiety such a pitfall to conflict? Uh, Jesus is going to pick us up in verse 25, and I want you guys to notice the flow of thought. He begins us in verse 25 of chapter 6. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Ultimately, what is Jesus trying to say in verse 25? The cure to anxiety, what anxiety shows you is where you are preoccupied. What you're anxious about shows you what you are most preoccupied about. That's why anxiety can be so gripping. That's why anxiety can bring you into a black hole that just spins you further and further down because anxiety just continues to build on and you get more and more worried, more and more worried. And it shows you ultimately what you're most preoccupied with. When you and I are preoccupied with the wrong things, again, we're not finding a joy in the Lord. Therefore, you and I don't stand a chance to handle conflict. So really, this idea of preoccupation and anxiety really tie together. Notice, though, the solution to it as Jesus goes on, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more than they? What is Jesus saying to you and I? I think two things. God can provide, and he cares enough to provide for you. Whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you find yourself worried about, really that primarily goes down to two different things. You're often your sense of value, whether God cares for you, whether someone else will care for you. And secondly, what God can do or can he provide for you in the midst of whatever you're worried about. And, and notice how he goes on further and he says in verse 27, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Anxiety and worry is the most fruitless exercise. <laughs> There's nothing more fruitless and pointless than worry. And yet you and I do it all the time, right? I think about things that are coming in the next few weeks. We're about to have a baby a month from today. I'm worried. I'm worried about sleepless nights. I'm worried about what's coming. I'm worried about a baby boy. I'm worried about what's coming, about how my life is going to change. All right. I'm incredibly excited. All right. Don't get me wrong. But there are several particular things that I'm incredibly worried about and anxious about. And it is absolutely pointless and absolutely fruitless. It does nothing fruitful for me. As opposed to if I just put it before the Lord and said, Lord, hey, here's where my worries are. Here's what I'm anxious about. Will you come and speak to these in my life and will you come and resolve them? And Jesus does it in the same way for you and I as he goes on in verse 28. And he says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil nor they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Anxiety completely goes back to the reality and the functioning of our own faith. When you and I are anxious, our faith is failing. When you and I are anxious, we are doubting in some kind of particular way as to the character and the purpose of God. I want to ask you in the midst of conflict, particularly, what are you doubting about the character of God? I think in the midst of conflict, really, anxiety causes us and prevents us to go before the Lord and say, Hey, Lord, here's what's going on in this relationship. I have no idea how to step towards it and to resolve it. And yet I so desperately need you to step in and and intervene. I need you to provide me the words that I so desperately need to speak. I need you to ensure that the person that I'm about to speak to can hear and hear well, and that you will bring this relationship back to a place far better than where we were even before the conflict. 
If conflict is going to be an opportunity that can increase communication, increase commitment, and bring back a relationship far stronger than before the conflict, it is absolutely impossible unless God intervenes and enables you to maneuver through that process in a way that only he can provide and cause to happen. The question is, do you trust that God can do that? And do you think he cares enough to be noticing that conflict and that he cares enough about that relationship to step in and intervene? The answer is yes. <laughs> he cared enough here in Philippians 4 that Paul is going to write an entire section towards this issue because this issue is so dominant in our lives, it's so dominant in our churches, it's so dominant in our families. Conflict is absolutely universal. You and I will all experience it. The question is, how do you and I respond to it? Do we see it as bad and we run and duck for cover? <laughs> Do we see it as bad and therefore we need to run right over somebody to ensure that this conflict is reduced and the opposition is silenced? Or have we learned what peace looks like? Peace that's maintained and established by a gentleness, by an encouragement, and by humility in which we don't attack. And a humility that says, hey, I could be just as responsible and I need to step in with the attitude of humility to hear, hey, how could I be responsible in the midst of this situation? Ultimately, a joy that is maintained that allows us to see the world differently so that we can step into conflict with a joy and and a willingness to to find joy despite circumstances and to hold life loosely and say, Lord, what do you want to do in and through this? Why have you allowed this conflict to emerge in my life? And how are you wanting to change me? How are you wanting to grow me? What are you wanting to teach me? And a joy that says, you are enough for me no matter where I'm walking and no matter what I have to do. That these relationships that you put in my life are valuable and that you want to teach me and grow me and transform me through these relationships. And so I don't want to run. I don't want to hide. I don't want to run for cover. Teach me to maneuver through this. Enable me and allow me as I pray through it to speak the words that you would have so that this relationship could land in a place that's far better and far more deeper uh, and far more significant and trusting than we ever had before it. Conflict can be a wonderful opportunity if we seize the opportunity and if we trust the Lord through it and, and resolve it appropriately and in a timely manner, then something greater can emerge from where we've been. In fact, I think you see that so powerfully and so clearly in the gospel itself. <laughs> Scriptures are absolutely clear that you and I have crossed and uh, been hostile and, and have transgressed the law of God. You and I have all, in a sense, fallen short of what God had called us to, and yet you and I found ourselves crossed with God. And yet what did God do? God took in himself the initiative and he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live on the earth and to live and walk a perfect life so that he could be a substitute and a sacrifice on our behalf for our own transgressions. He took our sin, he took our penalty, our payment, and made it his own and he died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. God himself laid down his rights and he came in humility, he came in gentleness, and he came with encouragement because he loved us and he cared for us. And he brought about a reconciliation that could never occur by anything that we could do. You and I can never earn the approval of God. We could have never earned back a relationship with God, and yet God had to do something on our behalf, and he took the initiative, and he did it, and he provided us a perfect model for what conflict resolution looks like. Mending a knee, coming in humility, and offering ourselves as a sacrifice, if that has to be the case, so that something even greater could come on the other side of the conflict. When reconciliation, resolution can come, and a relationship of communication and commitment could come on the other side of it that we could never have experienced apart from the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just a test case for what conflict resolution looks like, but an incredible model for really what God has done on our behalf. When we were enemies towards him, and yet he loved us enough and he cared for us enough, that he provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. And if God would send his only son, to experience a death even on the cross, then surely we can come across a room, we can come across a table, and we can bend a knee to a party that we've wronged or to a party that's wronged us and come in humility and come in compassion and come in gentleness, asking and hoping that God would move so as to bring about something even greater. 
God has done that for us, and surely we can do that for those that have come in our lives and for the conflicts that have emerged that are just absolutely inevitable at times. Surely God wants to do something even greater in and through those. Let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks for your gentleness with us, that even when we were hostile, you were patient with us and that you gave your only son for us. You gave us everything. And, and yet even as we came to you, even as we began to walk with you, we, you remained patient with us. You remained gracious with us. You remained gentle with us, Lord. And Father, I pray in the midst of our own relationships, Lord, maybe for some of us there's a relationship in our life that you've been putting on our heart, you've been putting on our mind that we've just have left dangling. Uh, that we've been afraid to speak up or we've been afraid to come back and ask for forgiveness, Lord. And I pray that for whoever that may be or whatever situation that may be, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to step forward. And I pray that you would give us the words and that you would give us the ability to come before you and slow down and, and ask and plead with you to enable us and help us in the midst of that conversation that needs to happen. I pray that you would give us the courage and the, abil- and the ability to move forward and to have that conversation. And Lord, and I pray for some of us, if we've never trusted you and we've never entered into a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to realize that you've stepped across the table t- toward us and that you've presented an offer toward us of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins that is absolutely free. Nothing on the basis of what we could do, but everything on the basis of what you've provided for us and that you made a way so that this conflict could be resolved so that we could find in your presence a security and a confidence and a joy that we could find nowhere else. And then we could realize that it is in your name, it is in your presence that life and joy and peace are found in a way that we can find in no other arena of life, Lord. Pray that you would allow us to find that this morning if that's where we are, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning, and we will see you guys next week.